we're, as Christians, we're well aware that we have to follow and carry our cross, right? And, it, and actually the cross and the, the passion of Jesus is the center of our faith, as well as his resurrection. So I think that gives us a different kind of, uh, a different view on suffering, if we really think about it. Hello, everyone. My name is Tim Carone, and I am the host of the What's Our Future podcast. I'm a member of the Society of Catholic Scientists. And in this podcast, I interview other Catholic scientists about their research, how that research fits into some of the big questions we face in church teachings. We also explore my guests' Catholicism, their religious journey, and what parts of church teachings they might find challenging as a scientist and why. Finally, we discuss the future of their area of research, as well as the future of faith and reason. Today, I interview Chris Raub, Associate Professor in Biomedical Engineering at the Catholic University of America. Chris uses, in his research, non-invasive novel imaging techniques to characterize the complex architectures in cells. He studies mechanobiology and tissues on a chip, which he'll describe in some detail in the podcast. I believe this podcast is unique, and I hope you find value in it. Please subscribe to the podcast and let us know how much you like it by giving it a five-star review and rating. Thank you. Welcome to the What's Our Future podcast. I'm Tim Carone, and today... I'm joined by Chris Raub from the Catholic University of America. Chris, welcome. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. So, I hear you that the CUA just got a new chancellor. Is that right? A new president. President. Yes. Okay. Uh, Peter Kilpatrick, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, we're excited. He's from New has a history at Notre Dame. Oh, okay. Cool. He, Can't I go wrong. The dean of engineering there. Ah, okay. Yeah, I I had uh, I taught in the business school, but I think I may have had one or two engineers who were sort of you know had like a double major or something. Um, they had kind of a cool area over there where they were, where the engineering school was. So good. Well, I hope that works out for you for you all. We're excited. Your background then is is kind of very interesting. It's in the biomed field, but it's uh, you know we talked with Kara Westmark, who's a Madison, and she is in the Alzheimer's area, and, and you know biomedical is like a, this huge conglomerate of so many topics. So, um, but first of all, where did you, uh, where you get your degrees from? What's your background? Right, I had my PhD from the University of California, Irvine, in two thousand nine, and that was in biomedical engineering. And uh, my undergraduate was actually biology with an emphasis on molecular biology from Harvey Mudd College, which is a small oh, yeah. science and engineering college out in Claremont, California. And then how'd you end up at CUA? I applied, interviewed, and was uh, given a position. I accepted. <laughs> uh, and drove out in four days across the country from California to D.C. Now, was that the, a first a postdoc and then a, or what was your progression? There. I had uh, several postdocs. One postdoc was partly supported by an, a nice NIH fellowship at uh, the Cartilage Tissue Engineering Laboratory at the University of San Diego, uh, California, San Diego. Yeah. Uh, and that was uh, a, a number of years. And uh, then after that, I had what I call a capstone postdoc, 
a very quick one, one year at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. And that was in okay. the Department of Pathology. Okay. I got to ask you, do you prefer California or Washington? East Coast, West Coast? <laughs> you know, I, I like it all. Um, coming from uh, Chicago, being born and raised in Chicago, um, out here in, in D.C., the woods of Virginia and Maryland, and it seems a little bit more like where I grew up. But uh, California was an adventure as well. Yeah, I, you know, I was five years at Berkeley, and I just could not bring myself to stay much longer. I don't know what it was about California in that area. It just people loved it, and I was odd man out. I, w I was I was ready to leave. Um, I, I, you know. I think what got to me was, you know, I, even though I grew up in New Jersey and, in you know, outside Newark, uh, you know, you know, cats couldn't jump from one roof to the other. And in California, in our neighborhood, you know, the cats would always be jumping from one roof. Everyone was so squished together. It just, <laughs> yeah. after, after a while, it just became a little too uh, difficult. But um, yeah, I'd spent 20 years in Chicago before moving up here to, to Wisconsin and uh, love Chicago. So, all right. So you, 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 work now, um, kind of three areas, you know, we had talked about and you provided some, uh, information for me. One is on kind of detectors. One is on mechanobiology on, on how stuff moves throughout cells and tissues. And then also being able to replicate the, the layers of our gums, those tissues on a, on a chip to study those things in vitro. So kind of interesting trifecta there, it, you know, especially on the imaging piece, which was sort of my, in my PhD, I, I was involved in building imager um, for telescopes. Yes. And, and so let's talk about first the, the, the optics piece, the biomedical optics, right? So right. You, you use different kinds of imaging techniques to try to characterize what goes on in cells and I'm assuming in between cells and try, yeah. And, yeah, and trying to understand, I, I guess it's fluid. Is it fluid dynamics that you're really trying to study? Well, it, it's, it can be solid mechanics in mechanobiology. Tissue is uh, viscoelastic, certainly. Uh, it's even poroviscoelastic, uh, for example, articular cartilage. And so, uh, Imaging can can yield information about the mechanical properties of tissue, but uh, uh, especially on on the micro scale, just looking at the microstructure and the cells, the organization of cells, uh, can give you a great uh, deal of information. And so, most of the optical systems that that I've been working on the past seven years have been dealing with endogenous signals to tissue. So we don't have to label the tissue, but we get information. And then also most of the, the imaging systems that we've built have been computational in a sense, which means we take a lot of pictures, do some optics work, and then upload them to MATLAB and then uh, drive computational maps. So that's the polarimetry, polarimetric imaging. And it's also digital hol holography. Right. Is the, is the idea to, to not, well, not so much take pictures, is, is there benefit or is this what is what you do then 
to look at things over time? Is there a different time scales that you image these microstructures over, um, or does that even matter? Uh, Time-resolved imaging, uh, especially of living tissues and tissue constructs, is fascinating, and it's definitely something we try to do. There's um, a subset of technology uh, and companies that build build the platforms that allow you to uh, sandwich your tissue and your constructs or your cells into uh, the appropriate culture dishes and that then can fit onto microscopes. Or you can put the microscope inside a, a whole incubator. And so you can, you can look at living uh, tissue as it changes, as the cells move and remodel their surroundings with those sorts of systems. And we do a little bit of that as well. But yeah, it, from, the, from the physics standpoint, you, you might appreciate it, this. You know the three, three qualities of light are its amplitude, its phase, and its uh, polarization. Right. And so, yeah, the, the, the recent microscope imaging system that we've been working on, it's a digital holographic microscope based on uh, interference of a reference and sample beam to uh, generate uh, holograms that we then, through computational means, uh, extract amplitude and phase maps from. The third, then, quality that I mentioned, polarization, uh, we added on, uh, this is an, an NIH-funded project, we added on a, a polarimetry module to that microscope. So now it can measure uh, polarization properties. And these have different names. Basically, the birefringent signal optical retardance is, is a related uh, parameter that we can, can quantify. And that, essentially, what it, what it gives you is you see cells, again, without labeling them, you see the background of the tissue or the substrate that, that surrounds them and that they interact with, uh, sort of like a spider in its web, and there's this reciprocal interaction going on. It's certainly mechanical, and you can see that when you're doing live cell, live tissue imaging. You can see the cells move, and you can see the substrate deform locally. And uh, the, the polar, polarization module is specifically uh, meant to look at the the nanostructure of the of the surrounding tissue and substrate, the biomaterial or the tissue that that uh, uh, yields a, a polarization dependent signal. Okay, so you get you know high high amount of information over a variety of time scales uh, to characterize the architecture, but the imaging right is just a means to an end to study things like cancer, cancer cells and characterize cancer cells, right? That's right, yeah. So, so the other half of my lab grows living models of tumors and tissues that are like the mucosa in a chip that you mentioned that it turns out are, are affected during uh, cancer therapy. And so uh, we're specifically interested in cancer invasion, which is one of the first steps, I would say, to the metastasis the spread of solid tumors. Right. Uh, there's a primary tumor, they break out, they move out of the individually and, and in a coordinated fashion, the cancer cells can move out from the primary site and find their way into lymphatics and blood vessels. Now, do you study how that metastasization starts? You know, originally, initially, cancer is is in, in a particular location 
but then it begins to spread. Do you, do you, is there a, a are your detection um, able to, 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 to look at very short time scales that allow you to understand how that metastasization starts? Most of the processes of uh, cells invading their surroundings, the first step to metastasis can be modeled in vitro, so in, in the lab, uh, with constructs that develop over seven days, maybe two weeks. Right. And uh, of course, longer culture is possible, but um, uh, there are complications that typically arise. So as, 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 as biomedical engineers, we started by looking at what platforms we could design that can more accurately recapitulate aspects of the tumor in the tumor microenvironment. And so uh, if you think about a tumor, what is it? It's 3D, it's three-dimensional. It exists in a substratum of tissue. Uh, there, it actually has some uh, mechanical uh, nature to it and it grows. So as it grows, it, it typically has, the inner part uh, has a necrotic core. And, uh, and there are other aspects that you could, you could go on and list many aspects of the, of the microenvironment of the, of the tumor. It's immune, uh, immune uh, relationship to the immune system, the uh, vessels that, that feed the, the tumor. But we chose to focus on the microstructure of collagen, which is a major supporting uh, protein in connective tissue, and uh, through which cancer cells must move and invade uh, in order to get to uh, these vessels and, and vessel networks eventually to metastasize. So we tried to engineer in collagen density, alignment, and, and cross-linking into, into our uh, uh, tumor uh, tissue models. All right, so the, the collagen, right, it either can inhibit or enhance uh, proliferation transport of cancer cells. It's not, yeah, it's not entirely clear. Uh, it's, it's a complicated story. It depends on the cancer type. Right. And uh, there's a lot of research going on through many labs, uh, specifically, for example, breast cancer. Uh, it's certainly the case that the density and, and alignment of uh, this rope-like uh, protein, uh, macromolecular protein collagen, in and around the tumor can, in some ways, enable the outward movement of, of tumor cells. And uh, cross-linking appears to have a role to play also. Uh, and yet, certainly, there could be the double-edged sword side of that, uh, that story. So that there's a, a lot of complexity to that. And that, of course, means as, as an engineer, if you want to build complexity into an in vitro model, that's great because it might help, help uh, understand what is going on in the body. We can control these things much better in vitro. Are, are you looking then for ways of inhibiting the spread of, of say, cancer cells by modifying the college? I mean, is that sort of your ultimate goal is, is if we modify the surrounding areas surrounding the collagen surrounding the cancerous area this will inhibit uh, metastasization well you know that that's a very interesting uh suggestion i would say yes there's a major goal out there to prevent or lower the incidence of metastasis or to prevent metastatic uh, uh, tumors from growing or to kill them in, in place before they get very large 
there are different potential and at this point theoretical strategic routes to treat the, this. So almost all of the of the cancer therapies out there today are uh, uh, anti-proliferative. Whether they're a chemotherapy or radiation therapy, it's it, 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 it there's a direct effect to their cytotoxic. They kill cells, right? Yeah. Um, and there are different ways to target the fact that tumor cells divide and uh, they need to stop dividing is one of, one of the uh, or they need to die essentially in order to to right. so that the patient can be rid of cancer. But there are no uh, currently, to my knowledge, migrostatics. These are agents that would prevent uh, cancer cells from moving. And if they can't move, well, one theory would say, or hypothetically, that would reduce metastasis. Now, uh, that does beg the question of when metastasis happens, because, of course, it is, it's rather hard to treat someone for an event that happened before they were aware of the, any symptoms. You get what I'm saying by that. So if someone comes to uh, the doctor and says, I feel sick, right. and they're diagnosed with cancer, and there's already metastatic disease present, yeah. that's uh, a little bit too late. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's not to say that there couldn't be some sort of screening and then even some sort of uh, uh, preventative therapy. That's another possibility. Uh, anything's possible, and these are, uh, they have to be uh, uh, well parsed out based on studies that, that people do. Yeah. I, in my, my family, we have a, a charitable uh, organization. My cousin died of. Uh, of uh, pancreatic cancer and so one of the things we do is we raise money for kind of very novel ideas around early detection because uh, one that's one of the problems with with pancreatic cancer is you know, he was healthy and great and fine and then suddenly he had a, a problem and he was diagnosed with stage four and so we we and it's very difficult I mean to your point right once you've once you've got the the overt symptoms of something's wrong, it, it can be uh, well past the the uh, stage of of being able to roll that back and to and undo the problem and and solve it. It's um, and we've funded a few ideas that that have had some limited success, but it's such a that's why I enjoyed reading your papers. Is it just it connected me with, especially on the imaging piece, because for a lot of this stuff requires novel and um, imaging techniques to understand how the uh, cells, cancer cells especially, can move through. Or um, with, uh, you know, our gum disease, which we'll get to in a second, same way, uh, understanding how these things uh, propagate and behave and, and potentially could be controlled. Um, yeah, I just found the whole idea of using the imaging techniques to characterize, you know, the mechanics and things is is really pretty fascinating. Um, and then, you know, the third thing we talked about, or you t you we, you know, talked about initially, um, and you sent me information on was the was the oral mucosa model, where you're really looking at um, things like gum disease and and things that have a, a relationship to pathological conditions um, in, in the 
I didn't appreciate, by the way, that our gums actually have multiple layers to it. I, I that was. Yeah. I have to go to my dentist shortly, so I may use some of his information to uh, impress him. But um, I, so you, you, you developed the way to, to to study again. It sounds like the uh, how the tissue, its relationship to pathological conditions, but on a chip. Right. So this is this is technology borrowed from certainly the the semiconductor uh, right. and chip uh, computer chip industry, but uh, it's it stems from work that's now more than 20, 20 years old uh, involving uh, uh, the concept of microfluidic chips built by soft lithography and using a material called polydimethylsiloxane (PDMS), uh, commonly known as silicone. It's a clear plastic, and it's it's somewhat biocompatible, which means that uh, again, through some lithography techniques, you can build channels in in this uh, chip-like, uh, essentially uh, uh, elastomeric or, or, or plastic uh, material, and it's transparent, so you can see through it with a microscope, which is very important. These sorts of tissues on a chip then are tiny; they're less than a square millimeter, certainly. And that is, uh, from, the con from the standpoint of, of basic biomedical science, that's very attractive in a sense, because you can see everything. So the channels are about 40 microns tall, and uh, they, uh, the, the design we use is a very simple uh, three parallel channel design with some posts and holes in, that interconnect between you can think of three hallways with columns uh, so that you can walk from one hallway to the other and essentially the middle the middle hallway becomes our our underlying layer of the mucosa the the fibroblast and the layer with the endothelial cells uh, and then the the outer layer is either a layer with media because we need nutrient media to keep the cells alive in there or it's the keratinocyte layer the keratinocytes are those cells that you can you can feel with your tongue right so they're the very top layer of the mucosa and the mucosa is a very sensitive tissue so it's it's the first uh, uh, tissue that that is encountered by you know anything that we put in our mouths uh, and so there's a microbiome uh, it's it, and it can be easily damaged but also as you probably many people have experienced with this anyone who's had oral surgeries has had experience with this it heals extremely quickly and so that's great but there are still chronic diseases of the mucosa and periodontitis is one we're initially interested in the mucosa and the chip because we're working with the American Dental Association Foundation which is a nonprofit research arm of the, the ADA. And they were interested in a model to test novel uh, dental materials. So they wanted to put the dental materials in the chip and see if these mucosal cells, human mucosal and gingival cells, were affected in some way. And so if they die uh, due to transient exposure to novel biomaterial, that's not obviously not great, right? So that was the initial concept of that, of the mucosa, the oral mucosa on a chip. And I should mention that there have been many other mucosas uh, on a chip, uh, colonic mucosa, intestinal mucosa, uh, uh, gastric mucosa. So, so this, is, uh, this is the oral mucosa, which, which is now gaining traction. But we, 
again, my, in, in my lab, we've shifted to want to look at this proximal to cancer treatments. And there is uh, a painful condition specific to uh, patients with uh, some blood cancers uh, and also certainly head and neck cancers called oral mucositis. And so uh, after the onset of chemo and radiation therapy, seven to 10 days later, there's a, uh, in inflammation in the mucosa. This can lead to these confluent mouth ulcers and some, some cases can actually bleed and uh, can have very, very serious side effects, especially now if they, they uh, are immune compromised and uh, this can be a source of infections. So there's limited treatment options for this. So we have recently been working on uh, trying to model muc oral mucositis on a chip. We've been trying to induce it and then allow it to repair on the chip. And the great thing about a, a mucosa on a chip is you can image the same spot every day very easily and you can see what's going on over time. And so if we ap apply some radiation to the chip, if we apply some chemotherapies, uh, chemotherapy agents, uh, there's the equivalent of ulceration. It's very visible with the, with the uh, simple uh, a microscope used in, in uh, looking at cells and tissues. And so we can watch that happen, so to speak. And then the idea is on the chip, you can start to test perhaps novel uh, treatments for this. And when you say that, uh, you know, the, the Dentist, Dentistry Association is concerned, is it concerned about the different kinds of, uh, whether it's a crown, whether it's a uh, dentures and things like that, how they interact with the mucosa once they've been implanted or installed, I don't know what the right word is. Um, oh, yeah. And then how... Just that alone, or is it is it, is it is it concerned because with people who have cancer and go undergoing radiation that induces a problem with mucosa with the in the mucosa with the dentures that already exist? Yeah, certainly. Well, so so when we were working with with scientists at the American Dental Association uh, Foundation, yeah. So they they were certainly. By the way, that that was the organization that that. Uh, aided, uh, initiated really the transition from the the amalgams to the composite resin fillings. Okay, yeah. So, so yeah, the de the dental association is interested in all those things, so anything related to oral health. But then the NIH is also, and so the NIDCR, the the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial uh, Diseases, is uh, is interested in oral mucositis, uh, pursuant or stemming from from cancer treatments. And so that, that was the grant that funded the, the work to develop the oral mucositis model on a chip. Okay. So it's really within a context of, of some sort of pathology associated with the with our gums is what it comes down to, is what you're really worried about. With that. Now, do you use the imaging techniques, the, the imaging the, the imaging techniques we just talked about earlier, do you use those here as well? Do they have a role to play? They do, potentially. Digital holography can be used very well uh, on in, in and on tissues on a chip because the tissues are transparent. And in uh, the microscope uh, that uh, my colleague George Nemetella has upstairs that we added the polarization module onto. Right. It's a transmissive configuration. 
which means that the sample has to be mostly transparent. So certainly that can be used. Do you, do you find any use for uh, augmented reality embedded into the chip to help with either detection or the different studies associated with this? That's interesting. What do you mean by augmented reality? reality. So uh, the easiest way I always explain it to people is, you know, go watch a football game and you'll see the first down markers um, and things superimposed on the field. I said, that's, that's augmented reality. Um, but you could also, I mean, there's lots of different ways of using it. I was just curious as to whether or not you also use it, not so much in the um, building of the chip, but in the use to determine the impact of um, different pathologies and, and the different uh, dental artifacts that are, that are involved. Well, that I see, that's interesting. Most image processing, it's of course, these are digital images. Most image processing is done post-processing, post-processing right. uh, after the fact, simply uh, due to the nature of the typical experimental workflow. But essentially real-time image processing, image manipulation is uh, now of course, increasingly possible. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, certainly, I think, uh, something for future. Yes. Yeah. Well, if you make a million dollars on it, I get half, just so we know. It's yeah, all right. Uh, you know, I've, I've encountered that idea uh, in several, uh, several ways. So. You mean it's not a novel idea? <laughs> is anything really novel? Yes. Well, that's, a, that's the one thing I've, I've learned over the years is whenever I have an idea that, that like my you know, people around me say, well, I've never heard of that. You know, first thing in my mind, I've trained myself as well. Somebody's thought of this before. Go figure out who found, you know, who figured, who, who came up with this idea before you and what happened, right? Because I learned there's never an original idea. It's somehow it's manifested in some other way, somewhere else. And, yes, but uh, the no novelty can be found in the instantiation and the uh, details. So that, that gives us hope. <laughs> <laughs> so... So this is this is great. I mean, I, I I think that understanding how, you know, as a digital, I mean, I do a lot of work, uh, or have done a lot of work in, in image reconstruction and novel imaging techniques. You know, when I was in, in the astrophysics world, but also with remote sensing, um, in the insurance industry, you know, inter we introduced some novel ideas, novel imagers, not just taking images. But, you know, doing even more basic things like taking color images, you know, with, with broadband, narrowband imagers and with uh, synthetic aperture radar and other uh, LIDAR systems. Um, so I think that I've always had a, a bias toward using imaging uh, to understand things, um, both at very short, medium and long time scales. And, you know, so this whole thing when you were, when I was reading your papers and, and, and so on, I, I, it really kind of resonated, resonated with me that, you know, these having really, uh, new novel imaging techniques and technologies, including, uh, you know, I call it augmented reality, but things that enhance the imaging process, whether it's in real time or whether it's during digital reconstruction, uh, can have a significant impact on, um, 
things that are important to everyone, especially with with cancer. You know, we didn't, you know, we didn't find much in the uh, pancreatic cancer work we did. Um, but you know, I'm, 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 this was fascinating to read through your work, um, especially with the gum disease. You know, I'm gonna. I'm going to sound when I go see my dentist again. I'm going to sound a lot smarter than I, I, I really am with him. So that's that's a good thing. So so let's step back then, right? We have um, given your work. You know, I always like to have you know person in the interview take a step back and say, okay, so in the bigger picture thing, you know, whether it's creation of life or universe or whatever, kind of how this all fits in. Sure. Well. Uh- Biomedicine is focused on, right, biomedical studies, biomedical engineering is engineering focused on on the human body. And uh, conventionally, that's in a a medical scenario. So uh, getting sick and having problems with our bodies is very common. And it's actually, we we can say that uh, today, although, you know, cancer, heart disease, these are still huge problems, right? Uh, We've come a long way with medicine. And uh, I think that biomedical engineering can use the tools of engineering to essentially continue that that long tradition of trying to relieve human suffering, specifically physical suffering from ailments, uh, uh, disabilities, uh, secondary conditions, morbidities from stroke, for example, and uh, just uh, an array of uh, the conditions that we find ourselves in. So cancer, cancer is certainly uh, on my lab's focus. But, but uh, as you said at the beginning uh, of our discussion, it's biomedical engineering is a huge field. It's really a smorgasbord, and there, and people are are making lots of progress in many different different areas. So. Uh, so I'd say that's where it fits in. And if you, if you want to uh, 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 frame the field in a in a more of a theological sense, you could say, well, it's addressing it's addressing the problem of suffering. I guess in a very pragmatic way, it's not necessarily answering the question of why they're suffering, but it's addressing it, right? Yeah. And so uh, yeah, I I thought and continue to feed, think, and I, I meet many many. Uh, students who are in the field and getting majors in biomedical engineering because they think it's going to help people and they're interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think people come from different directions on a lot of things and talking with Kara, you know, she had a different, uh, you know, kind of approach to this, but it, it, it's sort of like all these different directions becoming, um, how to get grounded, you know, within the, the church and the idea of suffering and the idea we, you know, we following Christ involves suffering. If, if it doesn't, there's, you know, you have to take a step back and figure out what you're doing wrong, I think. And you can do work like you do and care doesn't trying to relieve suffering, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, well, it's, it's an in- interesting, uh, distinction. I mean, I suppose there are many, many, uh, uh, underlying assumptions for why why we should we should uh, help people uh, uh, certainly as a field 
it's uh, it's. I mean, I think it's one. Uh, the, healthcare is one seventh of the GDP, so it's it's a place where people can work certainly, and there there are incentives, um, and relieving suffering is uh, uh, seems to resonate with us, create meaning in some ways. But on the other hand, what you said uh, is also true that we're as Christians, we're well aware that we have to follow and carry our cross, right? And, and actually the cross and the, the passion of Jesus is the center of our faith as well as his resurrection. So I think that gives us a different kind of, uh, a different view on suffering if we really think about it. But I'm, I'm not sure I could articulate that entirely well. Uh, what does it say about suffering? Uh, there can be meaning in it. Uh, you can consecrate suffering. Uh, I found that helpful to do before in, in my life, uh, to consecrate suffering to Jesus. What does that mean? That's interesting. Yeah, I, you're right. Sometimes suffering can lead to uh, you know, p- more positive outcome. For me, I, in the 80s, I struggled a lot with, with my faith to one degree, and it, it sort of came down to, does God exist? But then when my father was diagnosed with brain cancer, and when it was clear he was he was going to die from it, um, that, I, I really went through a really bad time for a while. Uh, I was in grad school, and I could just kind of go on autopilot and do my work and so on. Um, you know, but at nights, I would, you know, sit in the park across the street from my, my door or from my apartment, um, you know, trying to understand it. And the suffering I was going through actually led to a, a, a more meaningful relationship. I think with, I think that was the start of me being able to solve the problems I was having and the suffering led to a better understanding of my relationship with God and my understanding of the church. Um, and I think that was, that was certainly a, a, a nadir in my life. Um, but that suffering, I think I went through enabled me to find a lot of meaning. And, um, I, it was almost, it was almost necessary for me to go through it in hindsight. Um, and I think people, I've heard people tell stories, sort of similar experiences. Um, but you're right. We as humans, we want to remove people's suffering. Um, and especially when it's, it's physically painful or tough to watch. Um, so yeah, I, I can, I can understand, um, the desire to remove it. Um, but there's also something good that's come out of it, at least for me and I know others. Yeah. Well, as Catholics, we have the rosary and at least five of the mysteries are specifically about suffering. Suffering. Yeah. Although it's, it's been noted by, uh, by others that, uh, some of the, the joyful <laughs> mysteries, uh, are also uh, rather, uh, <laughs> full of suffering as well. <laughs> I know, I know. I, uh, I usually listen to, uh, do the rosary driving one way or the other from work because I have plenty of time for it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it also kind of depends on who you're listening to. You know, some people, 
you know, you just can't help but be happy even in, in the in the suffering piece. And other ones, you even the most joyous, luminous mysteries, you do definitely a bunch of Debbie Downers when they're doing the doing the uh the rosary. So it kinda depends too who you're listening to. I've uh, I haven't listened to um uh, the actor, uh, Mark, uh, he Wahlberg. just did him. Wahlberg, right. Yeah. He, I guess he's done rosaries. I haven't online with, uh, so I haven't listened to those. I don't know if you have either. And he would seem like somebody would be kind of interesting to listen to and, and listen to and, and, and do the rosary. But there's so many rosaries online. Uh, yeah. Bishop Barron has a great one. A set. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Those are yeah. my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, and I, I have to uh, refer to, to Father Paul Scalia. I was hearing him talk the other day, and he said there's a distinction about, uh, to, to sum up the talk in, um, in 30 seconds, there's a distinction between joy and happiness and between sorrow and, uh, and uh, I guess, uh, uh, suffering. Yeah. Or, you know, and in, in one way... Uh, uh, Joy and suffering can be holy, and they can they can actually be together. You can feel them at the same time. And on the other hand, the uh, uh, his point was that uh, sort of the sorrow, the condition that you find yourself in, say, yeah, uh, can happen qu quite often, but in a way that that is a, a worldly feeling. And it's completely understandable in many situations, yeah. but it, it, as thinking creatures, we can actually move move beyond it if we're allowed. You know, if we have the the time and the um, you know the the mental capacity to do that, we can we can still uh, go beyond that. And I would say also that we can be we can be given grace. Um, yes, but that's a that's a complicated topic. Yeah, and I'd never thought through that when I decided to be a biomedical engineer. I just thought, hey, um, actually, I, I had some experiences uh, in uh, a program in which I did a lot of shattering at a hospital in high school, and that really led led me to say, hey, uh, these people working at the hospital are in the front lines of uh, treating sick people and uh, very seriously ill people who are very seriously ill and injured. And uh, they do a great job. I don't think I want to do that, but I think I could. I could use my brain to be an engineer and give them the tools that they might need. Right. And, so it's a good segue into our next segment. I like to get to is around you know your kind of your faith journey and all. So you're a cradle Catholic. That's right. So far, everyone I've interviewed is a cradle Catholic. Though Kara Westmark said she is a. Um, She's she was Catholic, you know, at conception. So she did, she called herself a conception Catholic, I think. In a way, <laughs> it's like that's a good way of putting it. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm there with you. Your your faith journey from you know when you uh, you know once you sort of started school and experienced everything we all experienced growing up. Um, did you find your Catholicism was uh, you know was easy enough to accommodate and you had no problems with your faith journey or did you have some ups and downs? Did you have questions? Kind of what was that evolution like for you growing up and into college? Sure. Well, uh, at first, yeah, my, I think being Catholic was simply assumed. 
and I had questions and doubts when I was 10. It, I think that that's around the age. And I think that's very common. Yeah. And uh, when you're 10, you have, um, you know, I, I, I was able to reason things out, but I had a lot of questions, as you do, and not a lot of answers because not a lot of experience. <laughs> and so what I had settled on, though, in my, in my mind uh, was... Uh, the argument that went something like this. So, if there's no God, where do you, Chris, come from? Where do you come from? And when I, when I meant me, that's very interesting. I, I think I meant really the, the little person uh, looking out through my eyes, right? Yeah. So the me that experiences things. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know where they're now today i would say that i i perceive in my own experiences and in, in other people that there's a there's a, a principle of consciousness in the universe and I, I the interesting thing is i i don't see why it should be there that is i can imagine that it wouldn't have to be that we could be uh wet computers and we could still have this conversation, this exact conversation, you but should. there would be no, because there, there would have to be, uh, essentially it's, you, you know, it would be a, a very complicated result of uh, contingent processes. I wouldn't have said that when I was 10. I would just have said, no, that's not, not the way it is. Yeah. Um, but certainly, you know, so that was my own thinking, and, and uh, my parents were helpful uh, w without leading me on and simply uh, affirming uh, uh, faith. And so that, that was helpful. Um, my dad actually recommended I read The Robe, which is an old book. Oh, yeah. yeah I, think I, I did a book report in yeah. seventh grade on The Robe. I didn't read it till I was an adult, uh, although that does lead, I think, to a second great source of faith, which is... Um, encountering Jesus as a, a person. That's right. another thing that we, we have as Christians, and it's, it's remarkable. We can say that God became human, walked with us. Right. And uh, that's, that's it's hard to, it's hard to say just how that changes uh, how I, how I look at life. I, I'm not even sure I could say how it does. I'd have to think about that, but um, but that that exists, that knowledge exists. But you you like you said, you have a faith journey, and there are doubts, right? And so uh, when I was young, a teenager, that was the uh, '90s, and so you know the new atheists were, I think, quite popular then, or shall we say, I think Richard Dawkins had some books published in the '90s, yeah. and I encountered them, uh, uh, but I I never. Or really got d deeply into them or, or was swayed. And the reason is, and I have a very specific memory of being in a bookstore, opening, opening it up and starting to read the uh, argumentation. And I found it to be, uh, let's see, a set of fairly superficial arguments papered over with a veneer of, um, of mockery. Yeah. And as soon as I read that, I thought to myself, well, I, I know where that comes from. That's exactly what happens on the playground when you've got some, some uh, yeah. 
yeah. people uh, calling each other's names, some bullying going on. Yep. This guy's a grown up and he's doing this. That's that's kind of sad. And I, I just never, never was swayed by that because of the tone, actually. I, I wanted something deeper, and, and certainly there are, there are uh, uh, I suppose there, there's many, uh, you can go as deep as you want in, in, in theological arguments uh, for or against God, but uh, I think like Bishop Barron says, if you ask yourself four or five questions, eventually you get to something very fundamental. Yeah. And that seems to be, uh, has to be, uh, well, it can't be analyzed further scientifically. It has to be taken, certainly you can take it as, as, uh, as, as an article of faith. For me, I think that's God's goodness, that he's fundamentally good. And so, uh, that's hard to explain, but yeah. I think it's true. And one reason perhaps that it's true is that I feel that it's true is is I've largely been preserved, you know, from from massive suffering in my life. But I think I think it's more that that the universe is intelligible and that we have the ability to be people. And that's dangerous and it comes with a lot of suffering. But um, the fundamental goodness to me is uh well i've, I've got two kids and I, I don't want to make this too too dramatic but you know even if even if uh even if, if, if something terrible happened even if you had a child and and he or she was was killed or or, or didn't survive you know but you'd still be thankful that they were alive you know? yeah yeah and and that's not something I can analyze, but I feel it. it so and, that's a yeah. that's a basic assumption. And it's things like that where I, uh, you know, when I talk with people who view humans or any creature as a machine that can be taken apart, put together, where they view the brain as more of a computational device, uh, it's that sort of dynamic that I find difficult to believe we can replicate in any kind of a machine. Um, but I, I want to go back to your Dawkins thing, because you know, when I was in undergrad, I went to University of Kentucky, so I kind of experienced, um, I had to go to weddings uh, at various churches, even some evangelical churches, and dare not tell anybody I was Catholic. In fact, one of my fraternity brothers told me one time, he said, he goes, this is a church you don't want to tell people you're Catholic. I was like, okay, fine. Um, and But it was clear that there was this very strong evangelical bent with a um, very much of a historical reading of the Bible that, that uh, the earth was, you know, the, 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 the young earth hypothesis, young earth hypothesis yeah, yeah. as we call it today. But um, I, that's when, you know, these... Uh, preachers on TV started, right? So it kind of predates the new atheists um, in that they were, became quite prominent, these, these preachers. And, you know, you're in grad school, you work late hours in the lab and things, and the only thing on TV is Jimmy Swaggart, right? Um, so you need some noise in the background, but I can remember him, you know, he's, he was a very, uh, uh, very fascinating person. He's, his his cousin 
is Jerry Lee Lewis, right? And so Swagger has a, a you know entertainment component to him, and he's a very strong preacher at the time. And in, in listening to that, that was a that got me thinking, you know, asking questions about my faith. Okay, so all right, I I don't believe anything he's saying, but you know, how does the Catholic Church view the Bible? How does we view how do we view creation? You know, how do how does our opinion of or our belief in evolution fit into all this? So that was sort of one dynamic that started to help me. Um, but then with Dawkins and the New Atheists, I remember when Dawkins, I think it was his second book came out, and I went to the, the first thing I did is go to the index and look up Aquinas, and he actually had an entry there. So I went to that part of the book, and he had maybe two pages, three pages about Aquinas, and then because of what he wrote in two or three pages, dismissed Aquinas as a, mm-hmm. um, you know. And that's when I realized that there was no significant intellectual content to any of these these arguments from the new atheists. When I started listening to them, you know, I felt that, you know, it became clear, right, that that they don't understand, they haven't studied our our. Christology, they don't understand Aquinas or the Church Fathers, um, and you know they're asking questions to try to disprove or question the existence of God that have been answered, that were answered by the time of of Augustine. And it's sort of like, okay, go drum up the old stuff and you know recast it and make a few million dollars on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, you know, to me, the you know, kind of what you went through with Dawkins, it was clear that they, and, and I experienced this with people around me too, because they became big proponents of Dawkins and were kind of, you know, I, I never really got harassed. Um, you know, people would ask me questions, but I think um, the, the bully side was, was more of an intellectual bullying, um, which I think is what you're referring to, um, that, you know, you don't understand. I have a PhD. I'm at Cambridge or Oxford or wherever he's from. Um, I'm obviously going to be right, and whoever you are, are going to be wrong. So you have to listen to me. Yeah, you know, I encountered a lot of that kind of intellectual bullying, uh, which I think is what you are referring to. Sure. Yeah. And you know, I, I mean, let's be generous. Maybe that's just what sells. Uh, but but at a certain level, if you if you really want truth, well. Catholic tradition has 2,000 years of intellectuals and books written, and uh, I certainly haven't have have not read them all, but right. some people have read most of them. Uh, you know, I think that's that's why there's a place for for Catholic uh, apologists. So, uh, and there's surprisingly there's a there's a lot of content out there. Uh, Catholic Answers in San Diego is is. Uh, uh, one organization there there yeah just, yeah They're quite like entertaining them. yeah 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 and informative yeah 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 i've um learned a lot you know there's a couple podcasts where like catholic answers um i think james jimmy aiken was another one um i don't know if they're the same organization yeah. um that, you know but so kind of getting let me um just want to make sure i've i've you know covered everything with you so we uh, get you context here but so it was this you called it an externship at a hospital that really had a kind of a seminal impact on you and kind of sent you on your way down this whole biomedical um, path um, both from a spiritual but also you know your career wise 
Um, so that's, you know, it, I'm always jealous of people like the others I've talked to kind of the same way. Oh, I knew from the beginning, this is what I wanted to be. And it was, I felt God was calling me and this was just, there was some event in my life, right? Cause you know, I don't think that happened to me. I always wanted to be an astronaut or a uh, astronomer, but I never felt like I was called to it the way that a lot of others have described it to me. Let's let me pivot to a next our next kind of topic is around Catholic doctrine. The reason I like to talk about, you know, for scientists what's the most challenging part of Catholic doctrine is what I found for me was I always approach trying to understand doctrine as a homework problem almost, right? Is you had to first understand everything, read everything, and, and you know, the answers aren't in, you know, the back of the book like they are in calculus. But, you know, I, I, I found that I was sort of doing an analysis of the doctrine, not so much I didn't believe it, which I did, but it's tried to, more of an understanding, right? And to, for me, it was transubstantiation, which I have found some really fascinating things. One uh, scholar uses an approach to describe transubstantiation that, to me, sounds like object-oriented programming. So this is so I'm currently trying to f figure that out. What he's saying, and another one is is Michael Hamby's book. Michael's at the John Paul II Institute at at CUA where you are, talking about his book, No God, No Science, and how that, um, and talking about how science or scientism were the, were the kind of preferred uh, instantiation of that is evolutionary biology and Darwinism. It, it really does have a metaphysics and a theology all of its own that is, and it's part of the reason why uh, you know, there is no difference between science and scientism, as he says. And and it's really it's starting to impact me in ways I never thought, right, in terms of how science, theology, metaphysics are related, um, and the fact that creation, the, the, the doctrine of creation, which is not the Big Bang, it's something completely different, really has to be um, brought to the forefront. And so these are things that are challenging for me. The problem is I always address, I, I kind of come at them like a scientist because it's in my DNA, right? Sure. Which is why I like asking, you know, other people like yourself, other scientists, sort of what's challenging part of for Catholic doctrine for you and kind of how you approach it. And you, you approach it more as a scientist, as a theologian piece of you or, or how does that work for you? Oh, sure. Well, great question. Uh, yeah, you said something about science versus scientism. I, I guess I, I've i come to understand science simply, it's, it's a way of, of doing things, of finding things out, right? Right. So there are methods. There's the scientific method. Scientism, I suppose it's the sort of uh, beliefs that can be built on on a, a sort of a scaffolding of uh, of scientific theory although I, I think that you have to be a little careful about that it was one one thing that I know we're always careful of as scientists is extrapolation <laughs> extrapolation <laughs> and predictions a great example of this is uh, deep learning image regression so 
uh, if I can make this analogy. In uh, deep learning algorithms, as you know, are very good at uh, making a, from a training data set, uh, for example, if it's supervised, making these wonderful images, even images of people's faces, but who don't exist. Right. Or like uh, taking two famous people and merging their faces together so it's half and half. That can be a little... <laughs> That's a little weird sometimes. A little weird. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. in, 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 in biomedicine, it, it can actually be quite useful. And there, there was a, a paper that... Um, Again, a colleague in, uh, of mine, George Nimitel, and I, and some students published recently, which is in the idea of using uh, microscopy images of cells to predict uh, fluorescence-labeled images of the same cells. Okay. And so uh, that is a, a problem called image regression. But really what it is is it's image prediction. So based on the training set, you have a picture, say you have a, an image of a cell that looks like grayscale because it's a phase contrast image, okay? So it's just kind of the structure of the cell, and you can see certain uh, shading r resulting from uh, the difference in, in phase as the light tra traverses through the cell. And from that, you can predict, it, actually you can do this fairly well, you can predict what we call a nuclear fluorescence label. So you can come up with, and one of, one of these uh, uh, labels has the, the acronym DAPI, D-A-P-I. So you can actually uh, produce an image of the nucleus that looks pretty good. And it, in most cells, the nucleus is kind of egg-shaped, and it's, uh, it's, it's this round structure. But you can also look at other fluorescence labels and try to predict those. And uh, so, for example, uh, another protein called uh, vinculin. And vinculin is uh, part of a, a complex of proteins uh, that link the, the cell to its substrate. And uh, the, the skeleton, the skeletal proteins of the cell. And it turns out that the algorithm, the image prediction, will put uh, parts of uh, this vimentin label in the predicted image that aren't there at all. I mean, they're just not there. And that's a little bit problem of a problem if you want to have yeah. an accurate prediction. Yeah. And, and so, you know, just as in, in science, we say, well, these tools that we develop are good for some things, but not for others. And we've got to be very cautious when we, we go out on a limb. Well, I think you also have to theologically. Um, and so, you know, that's where analysis uh, can come in quite useful but also you realize again that uh, there's already been a lot put out there and a lot of thought that you probably have to read up on so 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 doctrinally uh, no real challenges to my faith at, at this point but challenges to my understanding yeah yeah and and of course I think that that centers around the, the dichotomy between understandable mechanisms and, and the miraculous. And, and I, can, I can assent to, to the existence of both of those. And, and, and part of that is because I, I see my own experience, just my own ex experiential existence as, as being in some way a, a, a common everyday miracle that I really can't explain. You know, and and there, are, there are theories of emergence, right? Yeah, but as scientists, we're very good at picking things apart and 
parsing them and, and taking them into simpler systems and understanding mechanisms. But we're, we're actually a lot, lot, we're not quite as good at synthesis. And that is, uh, that is where I think a lot of uh, the, the current um, competition, if you will, between faith and science uh, comes to a head. So there are things that we can't know, and possibly that's because systems can be so complicated that we really yeah. can't recreate them or predict them. Uh, they'd be more complicated than the machinery used, the, the computational machinery used to to try to simulate them. So there are certainly limitations there, and I, I'm not an expert on computational modeling, but I would say that that's that's most likely true. But um, there's also the the problem of taking uh, your analysis too far and then realizing that if you step back, well, that analysis can be very useful, but remember, we're, we're people, right? And uh, at a certain ex to a certain extent, there's, uh, there's, you have to encounter your own personhood and other people based on how, you know, our experiences. So these are harder to harder to quantify. So if we wanted to get specific, I think this is good to do to, to illustrate this. We could talk about the passion and the resurrection. So uh, the, uh, Jesus's passion, his, his uh, crucifixion, these are very open to analysis. And a lot of it is historical. Some of it is conjectural. There are are some sort of artifacts more or less controversial, which is a, another can of worms, but there's a lot been, that's been written about those. But r rather, we can say that we can, we can, to a certain extent, analyze through contemplation, through reading what other people have written, and just using, using our brains to try to reason things out. And my conclusion had been that, that the passion narratives are are extremely historically plausible. I mean, from a, a biomedical perspective? Certainly from a biomedical perspective, uh, you could talk about uh, the, the, the gospel account of uh, the Roman, uh, well, we can, be, we can be graphic, I guess, the, the Roman uh, spear into the side of Jesus, and uh, there was a, water and blood was released, was expelled. And to, in my, I have to say, reading that and hearing that is, as a child, sort of confusing. Well, the blood, okay. Water, what is that? Yeah. But medically, then, there have been explanations put forth, and is something, here's, here's a line of reasoning, just as an example. And it's conjectural, sure. uh, but you, you can read books about this. But uh, Jesus, in his passion, he was carrying the cross, piece of the cross, up, to, to the site of crucifixion, he fell down. This has been documented in the Gospels, right? He fell down, he dislocated his shoulder. Let's say. Uh, okay, so if you're crucified with a dislocated shoulder, that's going to be extremely painful, first of all. Um, but secondly, it's going to stretch that area. Uh, it will stretch an artery presumably, conjecturally, against some bone. And if you're crucified, you have to breathe. It's very hard. You have a rhythmic motion of your, your body. That creates a sawing effect of the artery against the bone. And over several hours, this can lead to the artery breaking. 
then the thoracic cavity is flooded with blood, actually pressurized blood. It's a condition called hemothorax. Okay, so here we have to rely on medical experts, and there's there, there certainly um, have been uh, uh, people with, with medical backgrounds who've written about this. So we say, well, that's conjecturally, that could happen. Sure. And then, okay, so a, a sword, a spear piercing the thoracic cavity is going to expel a pressurized blood. The water, it could be cerebrospinal fluid. We have quite a lot of that. And, you know, the, there are other various ways that, that we can have uh, yeah, clear, clear fluids also expelled. So, so, you know, that is all highly conjectural, but it's within the realm of speculation. And, and medically speaking, it's all mechanistic in a sense. Right, right. So there's, there's a number of different pathways to a, a common outcome. Yes. Right? It's, yeah. now, now, what's more difficult to analyze is, is the, the resurrection counts. Uh, to analyze with the scientific uh, part of your brain or the thinking medically, certainly. Um, and yet that's a, that's a cent central part of uh, Catholic faith, right? Christian faith. So the resurrection, I think, has to be looked at with a different lens, which is not to say that, it, that you, you can't use your imagination and your, your, your analytical faculties to, to speculate. But in the end, that can and maybe should become a little bit of a secondary uh, in priority to what the resurrection means for for our lives, for, for right. what what we should do, how we should act. Yeah. So I see I see that developing. You know, in a, as I think about about uh, miracles, I I typically think about yeah, why are they there? You know, so the signs and wonders in the in the gospel accounts. Why are they there? Well, uh, it, it's a testimony to, to who Jesus was. And then the, the resurrection has some specific connotations as well. Yeah, I've never thought about, you know, there's several uh, stories in the Bible of resurrection, Lazarus, little girl, and then Christ. I've never really thought about them from a, a science perspective, right? To me, they were miracles um, that occurred and, and there wasn't any overriding reason to try to find a, uh, a, a medical or scientific rationale for the uh, blood and water flowing from the side of Christ when he was pierced. That one, yeah, and you sort of answered that. I, I remember thinking about it a long time ago, but you know the, the explanations you have or the, any other similar one would you know kind of make sense, right? Um, so, you know, there are things I, I, I think most things I'll approach scientifically just because I have, you know, it's just how I do things. Um, well, very well, fact, we, we, very fact-based, but I think for yeah. the resurrection, it's, it's tough for me to think about it in, in scientific terms. Well, and, and that mirrors what we do every day. And in many situations, wow, analysis comes in uh, in a very mechanistic, straightforward way, comes in a lot of handy. I, I mean, very, very useful uh, analyzing right. uh, anything from your taxes to, uh, 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 yeah, uh, just it's useful. A and and that, yet, 
I, I will never tell my children, uh, you are wet computers, because there are way more than that, right? And that, that is something that you encounter. It's, it's the experience of uh, being a subjective, uh, created being, right? So I think that, that David, I think that we encounter both of those modes of thinking, right. and they're, they're uh, compatible. David Chalmers has just written a book about how he, he thinks that um, we can't dismiss the possibility that we're living in a simulation, to your point about being, you know, wet computers. I, I find it, um, it's, it compel it's a great book, you know, Chalmers, he's a great speaker, great writer. Um, I, I, I find it really, really difficult to, to, to think we're living in a simulation that this is all some sort of a computational grid we're living in. Um, I always also, I also also think, well, if, if they didn't have the matrix movies, would somebody have thought of this anyway? Right. So. <laughs> well, at that level, it's, it's hard to know what a, what a simulation really means, but I, I mean, I guess, you yeah, know, I'd have to read the book. Um, yeah, yeah it's, go, it's, going, it, it, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that that there's there's uh, I think that analysis of miracles, especially in the Gospels, uh, really do lead you to to theology. And the person whom we all know who who dealt with um, was able to to deal with uh, logically a great deal of of theological arguments. Of course, Thomas Aquinas. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, he was fairly prolific and, uh, there's a lot there, but even, um, you know, there, there are, there's plenty to, to think about and analyze in, even in, in, in certainly in theological situations, but it's, it's a sort of, a, there are different, uh, ways of thinking. And I think that reflects different levels of reality. You know, one of the things coming real quick back to Chalmers book is, you know, some of my atheist friends said, hey, look, you know, we, we have a way of having God, which is sort of the chief programmer of the simulation, um, and, it, and the God doesn't have to be perfect, right? They can be evil if we want them to. And I um, had my attempts to try to dissuade them, but it's, it's almost like now simulation, the simulation idea will replace the, the new atheists, you know, what they were proclaiming a few years back, it's just this, this, the next amount of of, athe of atheist attempt to discredit religion, and I, I, I think there's just going to be this continual battle we face between science and faith, and and trying to um, have this continual back and forth uh, with with people who are just bound and determined to prove that that you know religion is simply a um, um, you know, a waste of time, a, a, uh, I think one of, well, you know, I've, I've heard some fairly pejorative comments made, but basically uh, this is just a, a superstitious, uh, you know, nothing, nothing more than just, uh, belief in witches in just different people, uh, different, uh, names, but as a, you know, and so I think that there's always going to be this, the next thing that, atheists will, will come up with to uh, challenge the faith. And it, it, I'm wondering whether or not this whole idea of a simulation, which has got a lot of traction, 
in different areas. Um, in fact, there's a, several efforts that are trying to identify uh, flaws in the matrix. In other words, software defects to try to prove that the matrix exists. So it's it's not it's not something well, that people talk about in a bar on Friday afternoons. It's there's actual um, efforts being made. I mean, people are taking it seriously. But let me use that as a as a kind of a segue into you know kind of you know you know faith and reason um in in a little bit your thoughts around that i know that you know we're both very analytical but you know we talked before about how you know the human body is complex um but you made the comment too you said that you know outside of a body a cancer cell has a certain beauty to it yeah any cell does in the in the petri dish right it's not doing anybody any harm. It's, it's just there. And it's quite beautiful. It's very complicated. And it has all this agency. It, it acts in right. certain ways, in ways that we can, in fact, uh, we, can, we can measure. And, uh, and the, behavior, the behavior of cells is fascinating, very interesting. It's still some, somewhat of a black box. And certainly from the engineering perspective of the desire to control uh, cells, to do uh, medically useful things uh, is is a huge issue, and yes, it's the basis of much of our our current medicines, right? Right. So the idea that cell dysfunction leads to pathology and leads to disease, and can be corrected. Yeah. But uh, uh, the context of the cancer cell, well, it gets really bad when it's inside a person. Of course. Right. There's that, that transition to evil, so to speak, from beauty. It's uh, so you know one of the things we also talked about too was um, you know I think in the context of ethics was uh, and I know you're into in tissue and re tissue engineering uh, and you talked about some ethical issues around that and and so on that I thought we could explore. Sure. Well, the first. Corneal transplants, those were the first donor tissues that were transplanted uh, whole from, uh, and I, that really started to gain traction in the 50s. The Pope at the time, Pius XII, I believe, I'm, hope, I'm getting that right, I think it was Pius XII, was uh, uh, quite uh, on that subject. In fact, he wrote a, a treatise, I think it was called On Tissue Transplantation. In, in which he laid out a, a moral ethical uh, framework for, for tissue transplantation. And, it, you know, as a Catholic, I would understand this to include engineered tissue constructs as well. So at the time, it was corneal transplants. Of course, now there are kidneys and, and yeah. heart transplants and all that. And uh, I almost hesitate to say now that it seems like common sense because some sometimes one person's common sense is... Not all that common, but let's just say that uh, there were these basic principles of ethics that he outlined in that treatise, and one was certainly uh, the consent, informed consent, essentially. So the donor should consent uh, to the transplantation, so no forced organ donations. And secondly, uh, that it should be, you know, for also there's the other goods to be considered. There's the good of the the scientific community. Well, that's very important because, of course, organ donations and tissue transplantation, its ultimate goal and perhaps the highest goal is to, to help somebody who has a deficient 
tissue, uh, someone who doesn't, their kidney is failing, right? But as sci scientists and medical practitioners, you study transplantation as well. Because why? Well, you want to know, understand it first of all. And uh, well, it's a complicated scenario, so there's lots to think about and to modify and improve upon. So, uh, for example, immune rejection. Not a huge problem in corneas, usually, but a very large problem in any tissue or organ which is uh, exposed on a regular basis to a blood supply, which, of course, where the immune cells are carried. And so, you know, that's led to uh, uh, scientific research and then the development of these immune-suppressing uh, therapies that uh, are often used, uh, whether it's for a stem cell transplantation, uh, bone marrow transplantation, that is, or, um, you know, for a, a major organ. And so, so the, the, the good of the scientific community is certainly part of that. And so, you know, I, I think it was a fascinating read, and it was steeped in, in Catholic principles. I think that's interesting because, uh, Let's see, if those documents were coming out in the 50s, a lot of the, the medical ethics laws were codified in, in the 70, 70s, um, 80s. Even, I think HIPAA came about in the 90s, if I'm not, I yeah. could be wrong about that. And so, you know, this was, this was ahead of a lot of the, that law. And there have been books written again. There's, plen there's been plenty of medical malpractice and and, and bad ethics applied to medical experimentation. Uh, very bad scenarios. Uh, and so that, I think, points to another deficiency in the, the analytical scientific method, which is that uh, it's, it's useful, it's a tool, but it, it's, you should probably not derive all your values from that. Right. Because... <laughs> There need to be values that, that control the tools that you use, essentially. And so, and so I think, that, I think there's, there's a lot that can be said about that, um, like stewardship of, of the, the body. And, and, and ultimately, right, we're, we're not just uh, sources of tissue and organs to be farmed, right? Right. But we're, we're persons. And so where, where does that value come from? The idea that, that you're a creature created by God and you're loved. And if God was evil, and you, you mentioned that, the, the people who are, uh, you had discussions with uh, who, who want to say that the universe is a simulation. Well, simulation usually has a simulator, right? Right. But, but, it, but if you do not, yes, yeah, so there's the ba basic Christian doctrine that God is good. If you start to say that differently, then that calls into question the intrinsic value of human life. And, well, that's kind of dangerous because there are currently situations where, in fact, well, if, if you're uh, euphemistically a persona non grata in a certain culture, maybe your organs will be forcibly uh, transplanted. Right. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't want to go there. Right. <laughs> well, you know, the, I think one of the problems or a problem, reductive science, right? Um, you know, it's, it just seems like it's, it's, we've had to adopt this idea that our entire world, creatures, parts of creatures were machines or were instrum instrumented. And you're right. Um, 
I, 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 you know, I know that, for example, NASA is looking at genetically engineering humans for spaceflight, optimizing them for spaceflight. Um, I could start to see, under certain governmental regimes, having people who are are created for the sole purpose of harvesting their organs. Um, if if it got to that point, you know, there's there's just that view of humans as nothing more than uh, a machine that can be taken apart or parts removed or inserted. Um, and, and I I have a real fear of um, that that being okay, given how science has positioned itself as the final arbiter of truth. And the fact that there's still this idea that, you know, science as the final arbiter of truth cannot be questioned. And there is, and its inherent relativism is, sure, if we need, if at some point in the future we need, you know, to grow pigs for the sole purpose of providing organs for humans, um, I have no doubt we would do that. Um, and I'm not sure is that a, a good or bad thing. Certainly, I know growing humans for that role is a bad thing. But um, as you start to think about, do we simply grow genetically modified pigs, for example, to provide a source of replacement organs for humans who, who true duly need it? I don't know what kind of ethical ethics that brings up, uh, to bear on this, and what it is is and how the church would deal with that. Um, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I like to tell people I, I have questions and I, I'm not smart enough to have the answers. And I'm hoping lots of people smarter than me, or people a lot smarter than me, can can help me out. But I don't know if. I, sure. Um, and and that's sort of the sort of the things when I try to talk about faith and reason. You know, it's those intersections that, you know, if I come up with a use case like that, it kind of leads me to to further thinking and research and 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 actually i think generates a better understanding at least on my side of uh, of the inherent problems but also um potential solutions or at least a greater understanding of where solutions uh, or trade-offs might come from because what i learned in life is you never have solutions you only have trade-offs <laughs> you, sure. you, you know, you never have a. Um, we don't have a solution to our fossil fuel program. We just have trade-offs to other ways of of generating energy, uh, which come with their own set of problems and issues. But uh, but to um, let me just finish up. We're we um, very hour and a half into this, and uh, feels like ten minutes, at least for me. I don't know about you. Um, Yes. But I, th the last thing I wanted to cover was just to I always like to give my guests opportunity to to talk about whatever topic they would like, sort of in the context of of the church and its relationship to science and so on. Sure. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks for that opportunity. Um, yeah, I think I think I just wanted to emphasize the uh, the. The compatibility of science and faith. I have no problems with that. Um, as an engineer who's maybe about a, a scientist half the, half the time, if 
doing hypothesis-driven work. Uh, I have no problem with my faith, and I see no conflicts between between uh, uh, scientific inquiry and faith. Uh, uh, rather, the opposite. I think that they they together can paint a much more comprehensive view of reality than if someone were uh, to not integrate those those two ways of thinking. Um, I know it's been described before as uh, a binocular vision, right? So two eyes. And that's a pretty good analogy. Um, you know, I think that I don't have a great sense of this, but I've, I've heard certainly that, that uh, the current generation, young people growing up uh, in, in, at least in the U.S. today, often think there is a conflict between faith and science. I was talking to a, 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 an Uber driver in, in Georgia and uh, telling him uh, he had the same, somehow we got on the conversation, he thought there was a, uh, when I said I was a scientist and it, it happened that I was Catholic, it, he thought there was a conflict, right? Yeah. And I think that, that, that there is a popular belief that there is a conflict, but uh, I don't think that. But I do think that sort of poor, poor theological doctrines can be against science. That's possible, right? And, uh, and then again, uh, science without values can be misapplied, and, the, and history's been strewn with examples of, of right. uh, improper, well, badly grounded science, scientific inquiry leading to horrific uh, scenarios. So... Um, yeah, to be specific, you know, we could talk about the uh, the syphilis study in this country, um, Nazi science, uh, and that has all been very well documented. But yeah, often I think you're you're right. What you mentioned earlier is that it, it centers on uh, evolution and evolutionary theory versus um, creationism. But of course, as Catholics, we're we're not creationists. And uh, the Catholic Church has no problem with with evolution, right. but then again, y y there's something also interesting about the way the way that that scientific theories are are developed, right? And and it may be important to to at least from the the faith side to interpret scientific theories cautiously. And, and I think that there are great examples of this because in the 1800s when, when Darwinian evolution hit the big time, right, that, that, that fueled a great deal of the eugenics movement and, and yeah. ideas about, about racial inferiority, which are absolutely abhorrent and wrong. And so, you know, that's scientism, to be honest, Right, and I, I don't I don't see a, 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 a I see a conflict there I guess between scientism and, and, yeah. and faith but you know I, I, I think also the the, the Catholic Church has, has been very careful and this is because of the th several thousand years intellectual tradition it's very well grounded the Catechism is very well grounded in in theological the doctrine the theological doctrines are very well grounded. It, it's almost like I, I don't think they can conflict with with science, 
because they're not meant to. Right. And they're designed that way, you know. I, you know, I, I, you know, I've had discussions with people. First of all, everyone thinks that since, well, they tend to conflate all Christian religions into one and that we believe in a um, historical reading of the Bible. The earth was created in six days that we're all creationists. And it, it takes a while to get them off of that uh, if, if it's all successful. But, you know, I find it uh, frustrating just the, 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 the understanding that people have of Catholic scientists and, and their shock that we're actually able to be Catholic and also scientists that are, um, and we see no, in fact, we, we see them as, as um, two things that uh, reflect the image of God and his creation. You know, I, um, I've, I've, you know, I think, I think scientists, uh, Catholic scientists have a, I don't say, I don't know if we have a responsibility or not. I think we do of proclaiming that there is no conflict between the two things that in fact, this, the true, the truth behind how science and faith or reason and faith, as I like to put it, have, um, are, are very compatible, but it, it also calls on us to explain it in a, in a far more, no, there's no conflict because for these reasons, but also for the fact that really we, you, you can't have reason without, I think, a, at least as I'm learning and evolving in my understanding of theology uh, and philosophy is you really can't have uh, reason without a proper understanding the doctrine of creation, which everyone assumes is, oh, you mean the Big Bang? Well, no, we don't mean the Big Bang. It's this, this, it's well, this. Well, rather, yeah. I think rather you, you can say that God, God created the universe intelligible, mathematically and scientifically intelligible. Well, right. Which is rather remarkable. And, yeah. and if, if you take that, that is actually related in some way to the idea that God is, is, is ultimately good, is the source of all good. And how are those two, two concepts related? Well, it, it is good to be, <laughs> to be uh, able to use reason to, uh, to understand the world around you in an intelligible way. In fact, it would be uh, 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 quite confusing and, and, and maybe not even possible to exist in a universe that wasn't intelligible. Right. Which is not to say that there aren't mysteries that we that are lie well beyond our, our understanding and, and possibly yeah. beyond our, the reach of no, our knowledge, uh, our direct knowledge anyway. Right, right, exactly. Well, Chris, it's been great. I really uh, enjoyed this, this discussion with you. Like I said, it's what, hour 45 and it feels like just a few minutes, which is a good thing. Uh, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, spend and, and talk about your your life as a scientist and a Catholic. Oh, Tim, yeah, thanks for inviting me. I, I was happy to join your discussion. And, um, you know, if you do a lot of these, I'll be a customer too. And uh, I'm interested okay. in what, to, to hear all your other podcast uh, interviewees as well. Okay, well, that, uh, that'll happen shortly here. So thanks again. Take care, everybody.